You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Grab your Bible and join me in Jonah. Like I said, it, it uh, caught me off guard, uh, Advent season, uh, in the uh, as I was planning out sermon stuff, uh, I just didn't catch the fact that the first Sunday of Advent was going to be in uh, in November. So we are still, we're wrapping up our series in uh, the book of Jonah. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Jonah chapter 3, um, starting in verse 10 and going through the end of um, chapter 4. Uh, again, wanted to give some reminder because context is key uh, in uh, understanding Scripture. A lot of times, it's one of the challenges of even doing like we did the Advent readings. Um, there's you read a passage of Scripture and uh, you can you know understand the words that are coming out of it, or at least some of the words that are coming out of it. Uh, but uh, understanding the full scope of it because it's just. Uh, a thing by itself read uh, without any context around it. Sometimes we lose that. The book of Jonah um, is a minor prophet. So one of the, uh, or what is called the minor prophets. He's one of what were called the twelve um, uh, prophets of uh, Israel and Judah. Uh, and uh, it's a different book than all of the other ones uh, in its form and its function. Uh, apparently even what it's trying to say to us, to teach us about um, ourselves and about who God is. Jonah was a character uh, that we see one other time in Scripture. Uh, he shows up in uh, Kings uh, and he is just described as uh, the prophet of a not good king. Um, somebody who did not do what was right in the Lord's eyes, and yet uh, God still blessed this kingdom. Um, and uh, he's in northern Israel. So again, just as a reminder that after Solomon, Israel, the nation split in two. And so you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Two different kings, two different kingdoms. Uh, sometimes they were friendly with each other. Sometimes they were not friendly with each other. And uh, Jonah was a prophet, a preacher of, their, of his day in that northern kingdom. And the context or the story of Jonah is just all wrong. Uh, as, as you read it, like that's kind of the intent of it. It just, everything seems backwards. Everything seems like this shouldn't be and this shouldn't be right. And this, this doesn't feel right. And this doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't ring to me in a way. And it's intentionally that way. It's written in such a way as to kind of shock you out of just normal Bible reading, normal um, Scripture, and to say, okay, this just seems like a, a joke almost, right? The man of God, the prophet of God, God, God comes to him and he says, Jonah, I've got a message for you. Go to Assyria. Go to the, the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And what does the man of God do? He runs exactly the opposite direction. Nineveh is this way and he goes and heads to Tarshish as literally as far away as he can get from that. Uh, gets on the boat, uh, if you remember in chapter 1, and uh, the God causes a great storm to come on the sea, giant waves and the sailors who are all pagans. They're freaking out, pitching stuff over the side of the boat. And what's Jonah doing? Sleeping. 
on the bottom of the boat. It just, everything is wrong. Everything seems crazy. And in the event of it, they say, who are you and what are you about? And he tells them, he says, I am a Hebrew. I am a a prophet of God. I'm one who fears Yahweh by His own name. The one who made the land and the sea. And they say, what have you done? Because he says he was running from them. And they end up throwing him over the side of the boat. The storm stops instantly. They are utterly terrified. And God causes a giant fish to come swallow Jonah. And this is this story is just so crazy for us. Two of the things that we need to just keep in mind as we're going to read this passage here in a moment are the two kind of biggest characters uh, that are given to us in uh, the book of Jonah. The first is Assyria. Um, in today's term, this is modern day... Anybody know? What is, what is modern day Assyria? Or the the Nineveh specifically? Yeah, Iraq is the is the the key place of uh, Nineveh. It was the 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 hotbed of that place, uh, and Assyria was one of the first uh, world dominating entities. Uh, they it was Assyria, and then Babylon, and then the Medo Persians, and then Greek, and then Romans, and on and on down it goes. Uh, in this pattern, but the Assyrians kind of hold a, a pretty unique place uh, in global history. They were sadistic, uh, horrendous. One of the things that happened after ISIS came into and captured that area and bombed stuff, uh, the uh, the Islamic Republic or the Islamic um, ISIS movement, they wanted to blot out everything about their ethnicity that was not Islamic. So they looked back at their culture that at one point in time was not Islam, and they looked at those things and they said, we want to destroy it. If there's archaeological things, we want to blow it up. If there's museums to this stuff, we want it burned. We don't want any evidence of what we were prior to being Muslim. And so they did, and they blew stuff up, and they destroyed buildings. And when the Liberation Front came through, when uh, Allied troops and things went through and pushed them out of that, one of the things that was discovered is when buildings were blown up, it actually opened up archaeological sites that were not open beforehand because of the destruction that had taken place. Uh, and there were uh, specifically a kingdom of a uh, uh, Syrian king, a king of Nineveh, one of the rulers of Nineveh that I can't pronounce his name. It's like 47 characters long. Um, but it was his palace that was there and there were these ornate hand, or carvings, reliefs, uh, in that... Uh, in this palace uh, that was um, Assyrian art. And you go, wow, art, that's cool. And you guys like going to see art and stuff like that? You wouldn't enjoy seeing any of this art. It's, it is the most sadistic art that has probably ever been produced, ever. It was literally, you'd walk into this man's palace and what he wanted to show you was how evil he was in his conquest. It's reliefs of people having their tongues cut out of their faces so that as you move to the next panel, you would not be able to hear their screams as they're being flayed alive. And the next relief past that, it's young men who are being forced to grind the bones of their fathers before their own executions. 
I mean, just think of the horrific picture of this as you go to pay homage to this king and you're walking past all of this. And this is not, uh, this is not stuff that's hyperbole or like this could happen. This is what the Assyrians did. This is how evil they were. And this is the Assyrians that when they finally did, when God finally did pass His judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel, when the Assyrians came in and took over the northern kingdom of Israel, all of the tribes of Israel, as you read about in the Old Testament, that existed in the northern kingdom, they no longer exist. They're they're gone. They They were eliminated and blotted from the earth. And in the midst of that, in that kind of a personality, we have the character of Jonah, the prophet, the man of God, the preacher, the one that is the one that literally can stand up and say, thus says the Lord. And so you have this man of God and the epitome of evil of the day. And that's the clash of the story. We're introduced to those in the very first two verses of the, the, the book of Jonah. And in the midst of all of that, we have this great tension of this shouldn't be this way. And it concludes this way. Jonah goes after being swallowed by the whale. Uh, He prays in chapter 2, a prayer of repentance. God causes the fish to vomit him out. In chapter 3, the Lord came to him again and told him to go back to Nineveh and preach what He told him to do. He walked into this great city three days in. And then Jonah began to preach in that city. Five words in Hebrew, or uh, more than that in English. And all it simply was, this is his entire sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And how does everybody respond? Repentance. Brokenness. Putting on sackcloth and ashes. They are devastated by their sin. They're devastated by the reality of these things. Now any other prophet would look at this and be like, that's pretty incredible, right? I mean, if Ross is leading youth group on Wednesday night or I'm preaching on a Sunday morning and I give an invitation and Ross gives an invitation and everybody that's there repents and gets saved, amazing, right? You would think this is, this is call for celebration. This is incredible. This, especially Assyria, you've got to be kidding me, right? And we see in verse 10, this is where we're going to pick up in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw their deeds, the, uh, the, uh, the Ninevites, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. But in, it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Fiery is the word that's used there. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself, and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. 
So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant, for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hands as well? As many animals, this is the word of the Lord. It ends so abruptly, right? It just seems so odd. Where it's you know it's like any you know any great movie like you know Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit when they did the first one or the second one and it and it the movie ends right? Remember. Uh, in uh, in the Hobbit, when it's the the second one, and smog goes off into the distance, and he says, "What have we done?" And then credits roll, and you're just like, "What's happening? What what's coming up next?" And that's exactly what happens here. The man of God, the one that is the one that hears literally the voice of God and stands up and can say, uh, not just "I have read the word of the Lord," but "I am fixing to say the word of the Lord to you." That one is looking at God and is angry at God for being God for doing what God has done, and he's looking at Nineveh, and God basically just says, "Do you have a right to be angry at this?" And we expect to get Jonah's answer, and the book closes. And he just kind of left going, well, that was odd. Feels very strange. You see, there's, uh, there's something that is uniquely grotesque about the way that Jonah is acting. There's something about this that, again, just seems so dramatically wrong. It shakes us loose of our uh, preconceived notions of what a prophet is, or what a man of God is, or what the righteous one is, or what a holy person is. That this is not how those individuals are called to act. This is not the way that they're supposed to behave. And there's a a pattern of words that shows up throughout the book of Jonah that kind of awakens us a little bit to it. And unfortunately, again, like I've said uh, oftentimes, some of the poetic nature of Scripture gets lost when we translate it out of uh, its original language, out of Hebrew into English, because we're trying to make sense of words, because I don't know about you, I, I can't read Hebrew. It's not, I'm not some I'm fluid in, uh, or Greek, or Aramaic, or anything like that. Uh, but there's a, a couple of words that are used in Scripture, as, or are used in Jonah. If you read straight through, it's only four chapters. It's and sh- very, I mean, when I say chapters, it's not like a chapter book. That's 
you know, four kind of large paragraphs, if you will. But there's two words that show up again and again and again that awaken something in us or call to, or should be something to uh, cause us to pay attention to. Whenever you see a word used again and again in Scripture, that's usually a clue to pay attention to it. The first word that is used over and over again strategically in the book of Jonah is the word great. Great. Uh, Nineveh is described as that great city, as God is describing that. Great is, uh, it's big, but it's important, it's significant, you should pay attention to it. Then when he goes on to the waters, uh, or when he goes on to the boat, it says that God caused a great wind to come against him. The sailors' response uh, to um, the sea calming was that their fear that they initially had became great. It was a great fear. And the fish that came and swallowed Jonah was a great fish. A big fish. A great fish. And this word is used over and over again, almost just kind of like, you know, uh, when you're writing a paper, and you remember when you were in junior high or elementary, and they gave you, they said, you ever write a paper on this? And it has to have this many words. And so you started, okay, how, where can I add very? Right? You know, just to add words. And it almost feels like that. Great. And this was great. And he was great. And she was great. And this is all great. And that was great. And they were great. And you're great. And I'm great. Right? It almost feels like, come on, guys. Can't you pick a different word? But all of a sudden, at the end of this thing, when we're expecting to see the man of God be obedient to God, do what God says to do, and everything's great, and then all of a sudden, it stops. We don't see great again until the very last chapter. That's one of those things. Just follow me with that. The other word that shows up in this book is evil. We translate it evil. Sometimes it's translated uh, calamity, disaster, these kind of things. It's the word Ra. And this shows up in the book of Genesis the first time. Remember, God makes everything and He makes it. And after He makes things, what does He say? It's good. It's tov. That's the word that He uses there. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good repetitively. But then the first time that the word Ra gets used, it's the picture of... There's a certain tree in the middle of the garden. You can't, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that tree is the tree of the knowledge of Tov and Ra. Good, the way that God intended for things to be, and Ra, bad, evil, the things, the way in which God does not, did not design the world to function, and the delineation between those two things. And Jonah, chapter 1, he begins and he says, This great city, go again, preach against them because their evil has come up against me. And this word, uh, Ra, shows up a number of times. It's in uh, chapter 1, verse uh, uh, 2, twice. And then it shows up in this uh, uh, repentance of Jonah in chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, two different times there. Uh, it says that when God saw their deeds, Nineveh's deeds, that they had turned from their evil way, their way of raw, God relented concerning the raw that He intended to do to them and didn't do it. And last week we talked about the fact that repentance is a miraculous thing because repentance changes God's mind which is pretty profound if you think about it. 
great and evil. Two key words that show up in the book of Jonah. But only one time do those two words, great and evil, show up together, modifying each other and describing a particular character. And it shows up right here in verse, or chapter 4, verse 1. And it greatly... Our translations say displeased. That makes us feel like it's under, uncomfortable. In Hebrew, it's a, it's a pretty raw statement. He says, And Jonah produced in himself, or it welled up inside of him, a great evil. Out of his own self came... Great evil. It's so, uh, it's so grotesque. It's so stark because this is the man of God. This is the preacher, the one that declares the word of God, the one that is the one that is supposed to be leading people back to the Lord, leading them in repentance, leading them away. It just seems wrong. How many of you guys have ever seen a caricature picture, a drawing? You go to, you know, you go to a theme park or something or you go to a big city and there'll be some guy sitting in a chair and he'll have an easel and they'll have, be advertising doing caricatures and you sit down and he draws you in cartoon form and the whole point of a caricature is that they look at your features. Does your nose turn up? Does your nose turn down? Or your ears stick out? You know, do you have one eye different color? Do your eyebrows not sit the same? And as they draw those, they highlight those things. They make those things big. They draw those things out to exaggerate Exaggerate those things uh, as a point to uh, draw attention to what is real about you. They become excessively not real to highlight what is truly real. And so we begin to see in this, this caricature of a prophet of God who is not being obedient to everything that defines him. He says, I am a Hebrew. This is what his statement was to the, uh, the sailors on the boat. He said, I am one who fears the Lord. Specifically his name. We said as, as you read through Scripture, if you ever see the word Lord, and it's in all caps, that's our English translation telling you that's the proper name of God, Yahweh, that's given there. And that's what he says. He says, I, I fear the Lord God, the one who made everything. And everything about Jonah's actions, everything about everything he's doing shows that you're not acting like one of the chosen people of God. You're not acting like somebody that fears the Lord. You're not acting like someone that believes God is everything that He says. And he goes on his very next statement. He says, Please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was back in my own country, when I was with my people, when I was doing what I said? The reason that I left, the reason that I fled was I knew you were a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. One who relents from giving calamity. And I didn't want that to happen. God, I didn't want You to be who I actually know You to be. So wrong. So messed up. So jacked up. And that's the point as we're reading this, going like, this shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be this way. The prophet of God, Jonah, his response should be, praise God that he's doing exactly what he said he's doing. He's accomplishing everything that he's accomplished to be. But what is his, his uh, statement? 
he leaves the city and he goes out and it says that he, he builds the word there as tabernacle for himself to await God's judgments. Tabernacles, uh, there's a feast in Israel that they would celebrate every year. It was the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was literally, even to this day, if you go to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, people that are living in high-rise apartment complexes and everything like that, if they have a little balcony or up on the roof of their house or whatever, they'll go out and they'll make a little stick hut that has no roof. It's like literally four walls and you go sit underneath it. And the whole idea is there's no roof because you're dwelling with God. God's with you. God's present with you. And God gave them this festival of booths to celebrate every year as Jewish people to be reminded of God's faithfulness that He was present with them in their wandering of the wilderness and that they are His people and they are His God. And that's the first thing that Jonah does. He goes out and he erects this little tabernacle to give himself a little bit of shade on the sides. But it's the word here of the place, the dwelling place of where God uh, resides with His people. It was what the first tent of meeting before the uh, the um, temple was built was the tabernacle, this tent of meeting where God would meet with His people. And so the, the functional actions of Jonah as he goes out and builds this tabernacle reflects of himself this caricature picture of his own self-righteousness. I'm of the people of God. God dwells with me. He doesn't dwell with these people. I'm a member of God's family, not them. uh, Jonah's looking for judgment of evil when he's the one who has the great evil in his own heart. He's looking for evil in other people and to be done to other people, but he's not looking at his own heart. He's looking in self-righteousness towards himself. And in verse 6, God does exactly for Jonah what He has done for the Ninevites. God appoints a vine to grow and shade His head. Now, that's not what God did for the Ninevites. God didn't make a big vine grow over Nineveh and shade them. But I want you to see exactly what it does. In verse 6, it says, So the Lord appointed, caused, made to happen a plant, and it grew over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. Anybody want to guess what that word is right there for discomfort? His raw. His evil. God caused something to be there to deliver Him from the the discomfort, the evil that He was experiencing. Do you know that God didn't actually make us to burn in the sun? That's That's not how God made the like sunscreen didn't exist in the Garden of Eden and they were walking around naked. Before things went wrong, God had everything working right. It was working the way He had intended for it to work. And even in this simple thing, God is saying, there is great evil that is welled up inside of you. I'm going to cause this thing to come over you and deliver you from your discomfort that is within you. How was God described by the mouth of Jonah himself? He said, I knew that you were a gracious God, compassionate, 
slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, one who relents from sending disaster. This is him quoting what has been said throughout the Scriptures. This is the first time uh, this is said. This is God says this of Himself uh, in Exodus after the Israelites have sinned. They've already broken the Ten Commandments literally by building a, uh, breaking the first one, making that golden idol that they all worshipped. Uh, and God, when He declares His forgiveness of them, says of this, I am a God, or I am the God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. So God gives Jonah a taste of the answer to Jonah's prayer that he thinks that he wants. Jonah, as he's looking at the Ninevites, he doesn't want them to be saved. He wants them to die. He looks at everything that makes them who they are, think the reliefs that I described, and he says they don't deserve to live. They don't deserve to exist on this planet. They deserve exactly what I prophesied to them. Forty days and Nineveh will be turned over on itself. They don't deserve grace. They don't deserve mercy. And so God gives Jonah a taste of his own answer by God appointing a worm. Which is almost comical because what did God use last time to get Jonah's attention? A gigantic fish. And now God uses a small thing and it says, God appointed a worm to chew on the vine so that in the morning when the heat of the day came, the vine shriveled up. Uh, This might be, I'm not sure, the single smallest thing in Scripture that Scripture says God Himself enacts to accomplish His will. It's again. It's it's dramatized. It's as if God sets this sets this himself sets this little worm at the base of the vine tree and says, "Eat." And it does its thing, and the vine shrivels up and dies. And then God appoints again a great scorching wind to come and blow against him and just makes him as miserable as it possibly can be. When we think about the reality of this, you need to understand there's not one atom in the universe that does not vibrate exactly according to how God has appointed it to do. There's nothing in the universe that is outside of God's control. There's nothing that happens that God looks at it and goes, man, I didn't see that coming. Holy cow, that's crazy. The vine dries up and God appoints this scorching wind. And what is Jonah's response? It says that he is so hot and so miserable that all he just says is, I just want to die. Be better for me to die than to live. Twice he says this, in fact. His first is when he's just angry about it, and his second is as he's experiencing this this heat that is upon him. Two times, God asks Jonah a question. The first one, Jonah is still in the city. He has prophesied the people have repented, and it says that Jonah got angry. Angry, that's what we see there in, uh, in verse 1, greatly displeased, that great evil welled up inside of his heart and he became angry. Literally fiery is the word that's used there. 
And he makes that prayer to God and God asks him a question. In verse 4 he says, Do you have good reason to be angry? And what does Jonah respond? Nothing. He doesn't respond to God. He doesn't say nothing. He just stonewalls him. God texts him, Why are you angry? And he ghosts him. Right? Nothing. No response back. And then he goes out of the city, makes his little hut, sits on the hill, and just crosses his arms and stares at Nineveh and waits for something bad to happen. It just seems so childish. It seems so ridiculous. But he doesn't answer God. Then God does all this. The vine, the worm, the scorching wind. I want to die. I hate my life. Everything's so bad. And God asks him the same question, but a little bit longer. He says... Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? First time, he's angry at the repentance of these people. The second time, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? And Jonah responds that time. He says, yeah, it's right. I'm so angry I could die. (laughs) Exactly what he's... Does that sound like just stupid? Ridiculous? Crazy? We're all sitting here laughing at him going, this guy's an idiot. What? You don't say this to God. You don't do this to, you know, right? It's like when you got siblings and one of your siblings pops off at the parent and all the other siblings look and go like, it's fixing to happen, right? Judgment's coming, right? That's what we're doing is we're looking at Jonah going like, it's fixing to come, man. What in the world are you doing? God displayed grace. And it was revolting to Jonah. God displayed grace to the Ninevites. What did they deserve? Think the reliefs. They deserved death. They deserved to be blotted from the earth. And God gave them grace. He relented from the calamity He intended to do to them and He didn't do it. And Jonah looks at that and he says, that's not right. That shouldn't be that way. Not because he didn't love it when God gave him grace, mind you. You know, by not letting him be digested by the fish. That was a, that was a little bit of act of grace on God's part. But because Jonah couldn't fathom how God could overlook his enemy's sins. Early on in uh, Shell and Mai's ministry, when we were uh, pretty much brand new married, we got married. We were nineteen. We were just kids, uh, and we didn't know nothing. You know, right? We're just—I mean, we're in ministry and we're just serving and happy and being in the kind of thing or whatever. We're just kids, right? And I was serving at a church, uh, and there was this big scandal that happened. There was a couple that was at church, and the uh, the or two couples that were at church, and the man at the church uh, had an affair with the the wife of the other thing. She was a hairdresser, and he was a business owner, and it was just this big scandalous thing. And uh, they were maybe five or six years older than us. And again, we're brand new married, but I'm I'm the youth pastor, right? Like I'm, you, know, you get the title, and you're you're the one that has all the answers for everything. And so the uh, the dad of the wronged wife uh, couple thing approaches me as would you be willing to meet with them? And so we sit down and we talk, and we're just like, all right, well, we've been married a year. 
Here's scripture. This is what the Bible says. This is what's true. I know this is true. I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know experience, but here's what's true, right? We walk through all this kind of stuff, and God did a work in their life, and they reconciled, and the other couple reconciled, and it was a pretty big deal. But it was just, you know, walking through the truth of scripture, and there it was. We were at that church a couple years, and then God moved us down to South Louisiana, where I was pastoring another church. And uh, about four or five years after we had moved, I get a phone call from uh, the the man. This is the man that had been the the participant in the affair, and he was just devastated, brokenhearted, and everything else. And he tells me this story that his wife and him had been having some more marital troubles, and she had gone off on a, a girls-only cruise trip and while she was on that cruise trip she had an affair and he was just how can this be and she's all this kind of stuff and my first thought was to say dude what this was you five years ago this is you on the other side of this the, the dynamic of the how do you, do you not understand do you not understand like do you not see the reality of what you're like you're so angry at the reality of what you exactly yourself had done. Like a mirror picture of the dynamic of this. So what did we do? We picked up God's Word and we began to look at the truth of Scripture. And then, a curveball came. She's pregnant. And we don't know whose it is. And that leads into a whole other set of questions, but what do we do? We go back to what God's Word says and say, does God love that child? Every passage of Scripture says yes. Is that child any less valuable in the world regardless of the circumstances in which brought them into this world? I don't find any evidence for that. You see, this tension that we feel in that of going, the other, them, they're the ones that wronged me, they're without actually looking inward. This is Jonah's sin. He just couldn't fathom how God could overlook his enemy's sin. The other. When I was young, and a young Christian... One of my greatest sins was the sin of self-righteousness. And I've experienced this for a lot of people that grew up as Christians. Like their experience of their Christian life is that I've never not known being in church. I've never not known being around Christians. I've never not known uh, not knowing Scripture and not knowing those kind of things. And so there's this sense of, yeah, I, I've got it figured out. I'm living this kind of way, right? And as a very young Christian and a young person... Uh, it, it was uh, uh, it welled up in me in the sense of self-righteousness. And one of the ways that it manifested itself in me as a kid when I was bullied and things like that, it well, the self-righteousness, well, self-righteousness welled up in me as a wish of hell upon other people who were mean to me. Right? Well, they're getting what's coming to them, and that's all right. Yeah, whatever. You get, it's coming to you, man. It's coming at you. And I would justify it because I'm being bullied and that's not right and you shouldn't have this kind of thing or whatever. But as I grew older in Christ, I saw the childishness of all that, right? 
However, there still will creep into my soul this maniacal view of others who wrong me or others that sound a little bit like this. That's okay. They're going to get what's coming to them. They're going to get what's coming to them. And here's why that's so sadistic. It's as if that's not what Christ saved me from. That Christ saved me from hell. That it wasn't a guarantee that Chris Kopp was going to evade the realities of hell. And that by God's good graciousness, He loved me and gave His Son for me. Jesus says it this way, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, Raka, you fool, you worthless one, will be liable to the fire of hell. That's what He says. As a Christian, we are not given any leverage points against our fellow man. We're not given any reality of that our, our sin may not have been had equal effects upon the circumstances of the world, but they are no less warranted than to deserve the death of Jesus Christ as the only satisfactory payment. We know that no one stands before the cross on their own two feet. No one seeks Christ by their own self-righteousness. None of us gets to stand before God and say, I figured it out. I'm so amazing. God, you're so lucky to have me. Doesn't that sound arrogant? Doesn't that sound flagrant? Doesn't it sound like a whole lot like a prophet sitting up on a hill and saying, I'm so awesome, they're so terrible. God, you're nuts for not destroying them. That's how crazy self-righteousness sounds. It is God's graciousness acted out in our own lives to awaken in us the reality of our own need for salvation, forgiveness, and restoration. In his article that was titled, Over Our Dead Bodies, Pastor Greg Moore says this. I think it's profound. He says, So we do not merely warn others of God's wrath. We welcome them to embrace Christ and live. We have good news of great joy for every human. We have a gospel that cries, the curse wasn't strong enough. Satan wasn't crafty enough. Sin wasn't ultimate enough. Judgment wasn't final enough. Hell wasn't fiery enough. The grave wasn't deep enough. And the lost weren't distant enough. And the dead weren't dead enough for the Lamb of God who was slain. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said of our call to the lost that if sinners be damned, at least let them leap over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around them, their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. The caricature nature of Jonah looking at wicked Nineveh. There's no denying the reality that Nineveh was evil. That everything that they had done was evil. But the problem of evil 
is that we are so inclined to see it outside of ourselves that we don't see it rotting in our own souls. And our own need for forgiveness, our own need for restoration. So God is showing Jonah through a reasonable, rational way that he needs to get over himself and think of others. You're upset over a vine that you didn't plant and you didn't make it grow. You didn't tend it in any way. You didn't do anything for it. And it was in your life for such a short amount of time that you can't even claim that you have an emotional attachment to this thing. And here there are in this great city 120,000 people who don't know what they're doing. That's the idiom of they don't know their right hand from their left. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. They're living in blind ignorance. And you don't think that they are worth me caring about? Should I care about them less than you care about a weed? Do you feel the weight that He hangs on the reality of that? That's what God's doing. We've said that Jonah, the book of Jonah, is a prophetic mirror. That's the point of the story. You get to the end of it and you're like, that's crazy, and Jonah's in that case, and all those kind of things. But we get to the end of it and all of a sudden it ends abruptly and we're, we're left going like, so what was all that about? And then the more and more we think about it, the more and more we realize this is a warning to us. This is a warning warning for us to see ourselves. Jonah is the caricature of us. Jonah thinks the Ninevites are the worst evil people on the planet, but in the story, who's the one that has the most jacked up heart? It's Jonah. Christians are defined by the fact that God in Christ loved, redeemed, and forgave His enemies. Don't forget this, friends. The Bible says that before we came to Christ, we were defined by one thing. We were God's enemies. And God did not act in love towards us once we had changed from being His enemies. No, no, no. He loved us while we were yet His enemies. It really is mind-blowing to think about. The more we follow Christ, the more we come to embody the radical nature of what Christ taught us to do. To love our enemies. To pray for those who persecute you. Jesus radically changes how we view our enemies. No longer as our enemies, but as a fellow image bearer of God in desperate need of God's grace. And as even as I say that, many of you may be going like, okay, I know that Jesus says that. I know Jesus says things like, you know, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's great and that's awesome and I think that's such a noble virtue and that kind of stuff. I'm not going to do that. I mean, there's no, that's just ridiculous. This is why, friends, when we make statements like, we need to learn how to preach the gospel to ourselves in powerful ways so that we can preach it to other people, Because ultimately what we're saying in that is we don't think we actually were that bad before God. We don't actually understand our sin. We don't actually understand our desperate need for Him. The problem of evil is that we always see it more outside of ourselves than in ourselves. 
See, without Paul's awareness to this view, as we read Romans 7, when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We can never get to the joy of his response, which is literally the next word, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The book of Jonah concludes with a stark reality, this enemy of Israel that God does ultimately bring judgment on. Like uh, Nineveh and the, the Assyrian Empire was destroyed. God sent other prophets to... Their, their repentance was very short-lived. Their, their changing was not there and God did enact judgment against them and they were blotted out uh, from the earth as a, as a nation that was there. We're so short-sighted and how we live grace and mercy, forgiveness and love. We're, we're so circumstantial in the dynamic of that. We look at the other person uh, that, that we're you know, on social media with or across the cubicle from or sitting in the classroom with or whatever and we don't see them into eternity. We don't see the, the future reality of who they are and what's going on in their life. We just see the now. We just see the experience of where we're at in the moment. And it's a pretty profound thing because it hinders our ability to love our enemy well. Because we want to enact judgment. I know, mind you, justice on this earth and judgment as it's described in Scripture, those are not the same thing, right? Forgiveness uh, of a child molester or a murderer means I've released you from your debt to me you're now going to prison. Like there, there's, there's not a separation of the consequences of our actions here on earth from a changing of our heart attitude toward them. We don't look at them less human. And it is a dramatic thing. I was teaching here very recently on the, the nature of arguing in, uh, in or conflict in marriage. That's the That was the the subject that we were on. And the subject of conflict in marriage, I made a, I made a pretty, uh, I think it was a bold statement. I really do believe it to be true. Uh, society tells us that fighting in marriage is just normal. Like it should just be. I don't think fighting in marriage is a guarantee at all. Conflict in marriage is. There's two individuals that are there. But fighting... There's a difference. Conflict is saying there's an issue that I'm, I'm upset at. You've said something or something's happened. There's something that's outside of this. This action, this behavior, this inaction, this whatever. And, and I'm upset about it. It hurt me. It messed up my thing or whatever. And we are in disagreement about this thing. But the fight becomes when it's not about this thing outside of us. It now all of a sudden is about you. You are now the enemy. You've shifted away from this behavior and it's now placed firmly on you. And so the attacks, they don't they, they can't become beneficial because it's all about attacking the person. We can see that in the simplicity of of this uh, the reality of marriage. But when it comes to things like 
How does the Ukrainian soldier respond to the the Russian soldiers that have just been bombing them and then now all of a sudden they've surrendered. We, oh, we've, we've surrendered. We were literally just killing you ten minutes ago, but now, now we've surrendered. How do you act? How does your heart change? How do you see that person as a person? And for the Christian that is in any of these environments, in these moments of hard reality, saying, God, their action was evil. But you tell me to love them. I don't have the ability to do that of my own power. So as I look to Jesus, which defines everything about my life as a Christian, ought to, that is the point that we are growing into, it shifts the way that we view it. Jonah becomes kind of the laughing point. And you can read it and go, well, that's a, that's a silly story. Until you get to the end of the story and you realize that the story is actually you. And it becomes a lot less silly. And it becomes a lot more introspective. And it becomes one that we ought to pray to the Lord and say, God, give me the heart of Jesus that looked at those who with hatred were literally driving spikes through His wrists while He cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If the Son of God who loved them and knew their sin better than they even knew their own sin and was actually in the moment of dying to atone for their sin could do that, let us grow in those ways where we can forgive those that have wronged us even as we can walk in the prayer that Jesus gave us. Our Father who's in heaven, holy is Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our raw as we forgive those who have eviled against us. The problem of evil is not necessarily that there's lots of evil that's out there. The problem of evil is that we can't even see it in our own selves. And when we can see it in ourselves and we can see Jesus as being sufficient to deal with it, it empowers us to love other people who by the world's definition don't deserve love. But if we take the world's definition we didn't deserve love. This is the radical message of Christianity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the book of Jonah, this Old Testament tucked away small book that opens to us a mirror reality of our own selves. And God, I've given a hard word today because it's been a hard word that's kicked me in the teeth as I've prepared for this. And I pray, God, that it wouldn't be something that we just walk away from and go, well, that was interesting information. I know a couple new Hebrew words and other things. But Lord, help it to be something that we actually look in the mirror and see those who have desperately needed You and help us to love people, even our enemies, accordingly. Jesus, we're thankful that You loved us even when we didn't deserve it and You've done everything 
That if we just by faith in you, belief and repentance, turning away from our life and trusting you, redefining our life in you, that you, according to your good mercies, forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and bring us from being enemies to bring us to being sons and daughters of God. We love you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.